Stick in, in my life hack is to find, Karen and I, to find a couple 10 years younger than us uh, so we can stay young uh, and kind of look back. But anyway, great to see you guys. I, I was in this room when it was about to be opened up when they were doing the remodel, and I've been here for a couple of events and uh, thought just a hundred times, man, I hope a Sunday works out to come to be at Homestead. Christy talks about you incessantly uh, um, during the day. Uh, I know all your uh, secret sins, all your secret. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I know nothing about anybody in this room. Wink, wink. No, I'm kidding. I'm playing. No, we love our life and doing life with Jeff and Christy. They make us laugh. Uh, they make us lead well. Uh, and I've, I've met very few individuals in my entire life like uh, Pastor Christy Kerr. Um, she is one unusual gift to this world. We, we, we have... <laughs> Found a wonderful way. We laugh through almost everything uh, that is stressful, uh, leading a university and leading a church plant. And But it's God has been good. And so Jeff's one of my favorite worship leaders. I could sit on that front row every Sunday and just listen. It connects with my stage of life. It connects with where I've come from, with where I'm at, with where I'm headed. Worship should have that impact on you. So hope it's okay I wore a suit today. I know I probably look ridiculous uh, at Homestead today, but I just felt like throwing on a suit. I didn't put a tie on, so... I didn't go overboard. Also great to see my dear friend Roger Lane over there. The real legend of North Central University is uh, Roger Lane and his beautiful wife. And uh, I see some of the staff is here today as well. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6. So get your Bibles ready, if you will. I see Emma's over there. We call her the Little Colonel uh, at uh, LC uh, for Little Colonel at the at the college. Kirsten, good to see you as well today. I called you out. Um Anyway, my beautiful bride is on the front row. We've been married. This coming summer, we will celebrate 40 years of being married. That's a big number. <clears throat> we now are winning uh, contests uh, at events, Christian events. There is the downtown campus of River Valley. We snuck in there <clears throat> last year on Valentine's Day. And they were giving away, like, just this huge uh, gift to the longest married couple. Well, we started sticking our hand in the air. In 39 years, one, the longest married couple at the downtown campus where all the millennials are. And so we, 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 we walked away with a haul, a gift. So we went again this year on Valentine's Day. I said, we're going here because we will always be the oldest married couple at this church at the downtown campus. So it's kind of fun to be in that stage. But she's on the front row. But here's my favorite favorite photo of my bride, Karen. I think I have it right there. There's Karen right there. That's circa 1966, probably. She's probably four, three and a half, four years old. I love this picture. Um, it's one of my favorites. Her little bent wrist, a little matching dress and purse. I think it's Easter Sunday. Uh, the little barrette in her hair, the little page boy haircut. Uh, but I tell people it's the gleam in her eye. Look at that. Look at her eyes. Uh, it's that gleam. Very few things on the planet give a woman that gleam, that look. It only happens maybe once in a woman's life that she has the gleam in her eye like that. And Karen had it early because I think God was showing Karen the future. I think God was giving Karen a glimpse of, of what's to come. I think God was showing Karen this, actually, uh, that created that gleam. Uh, uh, <clears throat> that's a little strong, folks. That's a little strong for the first service. By the way, I, I preach in churches that have multiple services uh, almost every weekend. 
And the research proves that the, the early service of the three is by far the most spiritual people in the church because you put Jesus uh, clearly first. These other folks are still in bed. You know that. I know that. They're sleeping, and you are here putting Jesus at the top of your morning. I'm going to tell those other services this as well. So uh, you guys are the most spiritual people in the church. Anyway, I love that picture. I, I'm, I'm posing there with my little twisty pants, my little velvet twisty pants. Uh, my brother is enjoying his prison outfit there next to me on the left. Um, uh, and I'm doing my best. This is Easter Sunday, 1965, I think. We're in Fresno at the Fresno Airport. Um, we had church that morning, I think, and my parents said we went to the buffet at the Fresno Airport, uh, the restaurant. I said, what do we, what do we eat out of vending machines? What's, I know we were poor. But it was a big deal back in the day. But it's the haircut. You see, my dad, uh, we, we struggled. My dad worked in the timber industry and used to go cut big trees down for warehouser uh, lumber. And he had a chainsaw. And I still re uh, remember the smell of the oil on that chainsaw, that blade. That was his pride and joy. He never owned a Harley Davidson, but he had a chainsaw. And we were not allowed to touch the chainsaw. My dad was very skilled at, with the chainsaw. He also was responsible for our, our haircuts. And so my dad... My dad, I said, Pops, did you use the chainsaw on that haircut right there? Because I'm seeing that, that haircut ain't working. But I, I've told the students at North Central, you put a pair of skinny jeans on that with that haircut. That's a modern worship leader in any church in America. So I was way ahead of my game uh, uh, back in the day. So those two little entities collided. And we had four kids. Here's my favorite picture of my kids. Uh, so the top picture uh, was... In 1992, and the kids recreated it a couple years ago, uh, that scene. Uh, but that's Jocelyn. They actually got to uh, reverse their order here. So uh, the adult ones, that's Jocelyn over here. She's my oldest. And then Tyler, Kramer, and Spencer. And uh, they've been the joy of our life. And people people look at us now and they go, did, were you ever young? You know, when you get older, people wonder if you were ever young. Um, and did you ever raise kids? And did you ever look different than you do now? And so, but we lo love the kids. It's been great. And then they... All got married, and then they produced this, um, I think the next photo. So we're overrun with 11 grandkids now. They're, they've subsumed our life, and uh, they've taken over everything in our life. Um, and I could tell you story after story, but the kid to your far right there in the red long sleeve, that, that's little Elias. He's a spark plug. <coughs> His uh, mother, my son Tyler, and, and is married a Latina girl. And they have, so there's a lot of, a lot of Latin blood in that kid. His name is Elias. And he calls <coughs> Karen Gaga, which is super cute, you know, Gaga. Uh, uh, how cute is that, Gaga? <coughs> Until he turned to me and called me Kaka. Uh, <coughs> and I said, what'd you call Grandpa Kaka? He said, no, son, I took three years of Spanish in seventh grade. <laughs> I think I flunked it a couple times. But I, 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 uh, I do know what Kaka means. And I said, we, so we quickly, I, I, out of my pocket, I paid for the speech therapist to get that out of his uh, vocabulary. So, but we, we love our kids, and uh, they are an amazing, amazing uh, gift to, to our family, and hopefully to this world they'll be. So Mark chapter 6, get your Bibles ready to go into Mark chapter 6. I want to share a teaching this morning um, entitled Enough Already. I've shared this twice now, and I was sharing it with Christy on a Monday morning and a few weeks ago, and she literally said, when I shared her this message that the Lord had given me, she says, you got to come to Homestead and share this. So rarely does someone kind of hear an outline without hearing the message and then ask you to come and share the message. So if this 
doesn't resonate, you can blame your pastor over here. She's the one that invited me and assigned me my message. But I do believe that this is going to have uh, a significant impact on your life. Um, but it, I have a couple things here downstairs. Um, by the way, I just love the building. Uh, but downstairs, there's a couple resources. I only have a small handful of these. Uh, like literally 10 of these are down there. This is a brand new resource called On Call Heroes. Um, Tyndale House uh, approached me last year. They're a publisher, and they wanted to do a new gift book for first responders in America. There's no book like this anywhere in the country, secular or faith-based. And so this is a faith-based book that's a gift book that we give to the people that have been holding this country together for the last two years, police officers, firefighters, school teachers, nurses, all the first responders, either by a professional title or just by the passion of their heart to volunteer to keep this country running the last couple of years. It's just a beautiful book. And this first photo, really, I won't walk you through the whole book. This won't be story time here. But this photo of the black police officer with the tear coming down his face is just one of the most compelling images I've ever seen in my life. And it, it simply says, rarely is the wind at your back at precisely the moment you need. It's usually in your face, making you stronger. And so then there's this wonderful picture of this, soul, this firefighter uh, that simply says, when you serve others, the bitterness from not being served is washed away. And then one last photo of this military soldier carrying a wounded soldier off the battlefield. And I simply write, what made the good Samaritan good was that he removed abandonment. In other words, it's not about turning something wrong into something right. It's about turning someone lonely into someone loved. And so that was the real gift of the Samaritan. So this book, it's filled with beautiful photography. How do you use this book? First of all, if you're a first responder in here, um, these are available to you. We're going to run out of these. I think I've got eight of them down there. So I'll, I can get them. Christy knows where they're at. She knows where they're in the closet. Um, but I didn't have a key down in there today. But this book is also being, uh, business leaders are giving this to all the police officers and firefighters and first responders in their community. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, 600 graduates of the Chicago Police Department received their, their uh, certificate as a Chicago PD officer, and they were handed this book, those 600 graduates. It's finding its way into the police force, firefighting forces, uh, school teachers, truck drivers, everybody that is an on-call hero, this would be a great gift for you to give um, uh, to them and for you to also have for yourself. And then just secondly, real fast, this great little tool has made its way all over the country. It's a simple little leadership book called The Language of Influence and Personal Power. I wrote it initially for our church to take to work a couple years ago, right before I came to North Central. And I asked our people, how many of you work in a tough place? And everybody lived. How many of you work in a tough place? You go to work. How many, let me see your hands. You work in a tough place. Okay, I see some staff here uh, lifting their hands. Um, Christy, I didn't look your way. Okay, I, yeah, that, yeah, this would be one of the few places that would come back to bite me. Um, but how many of you actually work for the Antichrist? The Antichrist is your boss. I mean, you work for a tough, tough person. Um, and this book was designed for you to give to the, literally the most non-Christian person you know. And um, it's a book that you can hand to uh, somebody at work um, that you work for. You're on a team. You lead a team. And so this book is really has a fascinating 
um, uh, just kind of shelf life right now. It's made it to Warren Buffett's Mid-American Energy. They got uh, uh, a thousand of these books and are using it as their onboarding tool. Um, several companies, the New York Yankees use it. The Green Bay Packers use it as their leadership book last year. Um, and so I wish the Vikings would use it as well this year. Maybe they would do a little bit better. But this book um, is filled with hundreds of discussion starters on leadership. And it's a way for teams and individuals to grow. It's a very simple book to read. And it's filled with hundreds of ways to think about leadership. So as we go into our teaching in Mark 6, I just want to give you a, a couple things to think about. And then as, as we read through this, um, and then we look at this text out of Mark 6, I just want you to think about the kind of life and leadership that these disciples displayed in what I would call the worst day of their life, in which they cried out to Jesus and said, enough already. This teaching is really about the human heart's inability uh, to transcend this moment and this assignment on its own. And we really cry out like the disciples, enough already. But here's a couple things to think about in leadership. Put that next slide, if you will, up here. We'll go these super quick. Do you know if you think for too long about a missed opportunity? Chances are you'll miss the next one too. One of the key principles of this life is that we can't drop our head. We can't drop our head because we drop our heart when we drop our head. And we, when we have something not go well in our life, you have to take the good from it, but you have to move on from it. How many of you have ever totaled your car uh, before? You weren't totaled, but the car got totaled. They had you come down to Louie's Wrecking Yard. You go behind the chain link fence. You go up to your car that's been totaled. What do you do when you get there? You look at the car. You have some memories of the car. But you reach inside the wreckage and you pull out what's valuable. You don't tie the wreck to your leg and drag it around for the rest of your life. When we fail, when we go through disappointments, when we go through just cataclysmic events, but we're still breathing, we have to reach inside the wreckage, pull out the wisdom, but leave the wreckage behind. What the enemy wants you to do is drop your head for extended periods of time to get into a place of pity and regret. And if you drop your head for too long over a missed opportunity, if you think too long, chances are three more just came by, but you missed it because you've been obsessing for too long about your disappointment and your failure. It's one of the most important principles as a Christian, one of the most important principles in the workplace. Here's another one for you super fast. Um, we have to lead strategically but love spontaneously. We're getting this backwards right now. We are loving strategically. I'm going to be very discerning about who I love. Very No, no, the Bible says we have to be spontaneous in our love. It cannot be calculated or measured. It has to be given to strangers. It has to be given to enemies. Now, we lead strategically, but the believer, we must love spontaneously. Here's another one to keep in your heart. You cannot force people to stop feeling something. You can only help them start to feel something new. You can't tell people, stop feeling that way. Stop thinking that. You can't tell people to stop feeling anything. They feel it. All you can do is give them a new experience. That's why all this political craziness on social media, people yelling at each other, telling them to stop feeling something, it's a big waste of time until they have a new experience, a new encounter with a person that gives them something new to feel. The old feeling will always remain. So stop telling people to stop feeling. Give them new experiences to feel new things. Here's another one for you as a leader. You know, discernment is not the ability to know right from wrong. It's the ability to know right from almost right. 
It's the ability to write. It's, it's the ability to understand the difference between a substance and a shadow that from a distance looks the same. That's why the word of God, the two trees in the garden, they looked similar. They sounded similar. They produced similar uh, fruit to the taste and to the eye. The only way you could tell the tree of life from the tree of death, which was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was what God said about the tree. The only way you can discern in this world what is legitimate and what is absurd is what God's word has said about the behavior or the activity because they're presented as similarities in this, in this life. Discernment is not right from wrong. It's right from almost right. Here's another one that leaders need to know. Uh, be thankful before it arrives, not after. Live with a state of gratitude before things happen. Don't just wait for it to culminate and then you give thanks for it. One more real fast, then we'll get into the scripture here. Just remember, if it comes too easily, it will probably be forgotten. When things are difficult, it's how it, it's how it embeds. When things are delayed, it's how it becomes sealed and tattooed in the soul. If stuff comes too easily in this life, it will probably be forgotten, which means it will never become a lesson to your grandchildren. It will never be kind, become the notable experience it needs to be so you can pass it on at any given time that lives at the top of your heart. There's hundreds of those in here for you, your teams. That's downstairs. Okay, Mark chapter 6. I'm going to weave together in the next 20 minutes really three separate stories that are often preached or taught um, separately and not as a single narrative. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase through some of this. Some of this you've read, some in this room read these stories 50, 60 years ago. Some of you are going to be hearing something for the very first time in your life. So the Bible and the Holy Spirit has an amazing way of taking a crowd of people. Some are at the curiosity stage. Some are at the well-established uh, stage of their faith. Can hear the same thing. The Holy Spirit's going to distribute this to you in a way that you can understand it and grab it. So it starts in Mark chapter 6 with really a gruesome story. It's one of the few tales in the Bible or stories in the Bible that you're going like, ooh, that's a pretty intense story right there. It's kind of like David and Goliath. I mean, one of the great children's stories in all the Bible is David and Goliath, and it's about a beheading. I mean, I go, wow, this is crazy how we kind of sanitized that story and made it, you know, a little armor that the kids get to wear. <laughs> like, you do the stories about a guy gets beheaded. So, so we're going to go to another beheading story here in the New Testament. There's a theme today. Um, the Bible says that this, that this governor named Herod became uh, upset at a prophet named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the second cousin of Jesus. His mother, Jesus' mother, were first cousins. These were second cousins now, and they were uh, related. So John was six months older than Jesus. You know, Mary and Elizabeth have that powerful moment when Elizabeth is with John the Baptist, and it says that the baby inside me leapt with joy when Jesus came in, when Jesus was literally only a cell cluster. The Holy Spirit had just conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary, and imagine Jesus fitting on the, the, the head of a pin, uh, but that's about how big Jesus was. But when he walked in the room inside Mary's womb, the Bible says that John the Baptist leapt for joy. He was six months in the womb, still three months from being born. Now his ministry is well matured. We read about John. He is a significant figure in the Bible. He's kind of a maverick. He's a unicorn. He's out on the street corner. He's kind of a social misfit. But his message is so accurate that the highest level politicians like Herod respect him. People in the streets, the homeless respected John. 
he had transcended his society by this powerful lane that he operated in of prophecy, but he wasn't connected to this world. His garments and his food uh, was kind of outside the social norms. But people respected John. The Bible says that the governor, Herod, had several private conversations with John the Baptist. And the Bible then says, for Herod, beginning at verse 17 of Mark 6, had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. So it kind of sounds a little Shakespearean right here. So Herod took his brother Philip's wife without permission, just because he was the most powerful politician. He swung the scepter and stole this man's wife. So the Bible says, for John had been telling the governor, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias, the woman, bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed uh, whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to hear and to listen to John. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for himself, uh, for uh, all the officials and the army officers and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his, and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I'll give it to you. He even vowed, I will give it to you whatever you ask, up to half my kingdom. When you're drunk and being seduced, it's amazing what you will commit to. It says here, she went out and asked mom, what should I ask for? Her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried to the king told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. This stuff is ISIS-like. I mean, this is unbelievable. YouTube would ban the content of what's going on in the Bible. This is unbelievable. The king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to cut off John the Baptist's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison. You kind of expect an angel to show up somewhere in this space and stop it, but it doesn't happen. So let's set the stage here. This is very contemporary. It's a politician, like most politicians. Privately, they believe this or like this, but publicly they're caught in their political platform and their viewpoint or their party. So he's torn between his private respect for John and believing what John is saying is true, but his public political platform. So what happens as, as it is in Herod's day, as it is in our day, politics always wins. That's why politicians, man, it's very difficult to be a politician and a Christian because there's no place your heart can be transformed. You can't change your thinking because you've invested so much of your public opinions in your party platform that you can't divest of that or you lose your power. Even though privately, you don't believe any of it. But publicly and politically, he's stuck. We see that all day long in our country. We see politicians operating like this, committed to the party platforms instead of what they privately believe in one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so Herod is torn. 
Herodias is bearing this grudge. Why? Because quite frankly and quite bluntly, Herod stuck his nose in somebody's sexual story. And whenever you stick your nose in somebody's sexual story, friends, it is nuclear in their reaction. You see it today. Nothing's changed. This story's right out of our own headlines. So the sexual narrative, dude, you can't be married to this woman. You stole her from another man. Can't do this. Herod knew that John was right, but he did privately what he was going to do. And then publicly, he, he, he committed to his, his public policy. And finally, it caught up with him because Herodias bore a grudge. And there's people all over this nation who bear grudges against their pastor because their pastor is trying to lift up with gentleness. And it doesn't say that John, that, that, um, doesn't say that John the Baptist went on social media and was ripping Herod publicly. These were private conversations. They were gentle, private conversations. But Herodias bore a grudge and wanted to kill him. We got people that want to kill us all over the place, friends, quite honestly. In their heart, they'd rather see you dead because you, you have no place sticking your nose in my private life like that. It just I know I'm preaching here for the first time, but let's just, we got to be honest because it's going to lead up to something very profound in this passage. So John is killed. Seriously? John the Baptist? The most spiritual man next to Jesus on the planet is killed on a drunken whim because the governor's drunk and he's having some pole dancer seduce him. And suddenly he's saying, whatever you want, half my kingdom. And where's the angel of the Lord to stop it? Imagine the disciples. The scripture says that the disciples heard about this and they came to get his body and buried it in a, in a tomb. The disciples had to come get this body that had been beheaded. Imagine the PTSD. Imagine the cloud of death that hovered over the disciples. If God could not protect John the Baptist, how is he going to protect me? He's ten times more spiritual than I am. So the certainty or the inevitability of death is now hovering over the church in its New Testament form. Two years ago when COVID struck this country and people we knew lost their life and we all don't know if our next breath contains the executioner virus, are we going to die? And every single day, death counts are in the news. Every day, a death count. So death kind of has hovered over us the last couple of years. Everywhere we go, the message of death. And of course, it's crazy because it seemed like during the Super Bowl, when all those celebrities didn't wear their mask on the inside of the uh, inside stadium, it's like COVID ended on Super Bowl Sunday. It's like, okay, I guess COVID's over today. Woo, end of COVID. And then World War III starts the next morning. It's like, seriously, there's no break in the action. And there has been this heavy cloud over us as believers and over the church, over this world of, of death. That's what was hovering over the disciples. Imagine as they buried John the Baptist's headless body in a tomb. So the Bible says that they go back to Jesus. And they return to Jesus to report all that they had seen and done. And Jesus who finds out his second cousin has now been beheaded. He said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. Everybody I know has been looking for the quiet place to rest. For the last couple of years, we got we to reset. 
We need a retreat. We got to get out from under this constant drumbeat of death. And so the disciples and Jesus says, let's just get by ourselves. Let's just go rest for a while. A natural human hunger and longing when something of this magnitude, John the Baptist has been beheaded on a, on a whim and God didn't stop it. Is the devil that powerful just to take out John the Baptist on a whim? What's that mean for us? What's that mean for me? So the inevitable of death just hovered over the disciples. Jesus and the disciples are trying to find a place alone. And he said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. I have that underlined in my scripture. There were so many people clamoring for the disciples as they're reporting to Jesus about John's death. The crowds are everywhere. They're clamoring. They're running. They're trying to find a lonely place, but they can't. It's a beehive of activity. There is frenetic craziness everywhere. Can't escape it. And it was so crazy that there was no time to eat. Now let's start to stack these on top of each other. Not only is the cloud of death hovering over the disciples, now they're running on empty. And for the last two years, our nation has been running on empty. Churches are running on empty. Everything that we typically have eaten emotionally, spiritually, has been disrupted. Social distancing, churches haven't been able to meet. Worship was disrupted. Everything went online. People can't see their loved ones. People are polarized because of the election. Families are no longer meeting. Churches are divided. Everybody is running on an empty stomach, spiritually and emotionally. The banner of death is over us. John is dead. Now I'm running on empty. Start to paint the picture, and it looks a lot like the world in which we live. The Bible says then that Jesus sees the crowds, and Jesus kicks in where only he can. He has compassion for the crowds. His belly's empty. He knows about John's death. He knows the inevitability of persecution that's coming. He knew about the cross. He would later speak of it nine months before it happened. He has not had time to feed himself. But the demands of the crowd in the moment are still in front of him. So it says that he sits them down and begins to teach the crowds. So he taught them all day long. And he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began teaching them many things. Remember, compassion at its core has to include more than food. The Bible says that Jesus had compassion and began to teach them. So teaching is at the core along with the bread. Bread alone, food alone to alleviate suffering in the moment. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't underestimate the role teaching plays in compassion. Because you have to lead people to a better, higher place for the future. I tell people you have to cleanse the wound, not just close the wound. When the good Samaritan came upon him, remember, we call him good. The Bible doesn't use the word good. It simply says Samaritan. History has assigned the word good to the Samaritan. Why was he good? And he goes up to the Samaritan, and the first thing he does is produce more pain in the Samaritan. What do you mean? It says he poured wine in the wound. When you pour wine in the wound, it says he poured wine and oil. Why would you put wine into a wound? It would sting. It would hurt because he knew he has to kill the bacteria because the bacteria will ultimately do what the blade will not. Then he put oil in there to soothe. 
So you can't just be a church that pours oil into wounded people. You have to deal with the bacteria of sin. But you also can't just be some church that pours wine into the wound. you got to put oil and wine in the wound. you got to deal with the future ramifications of the secret bacteria that sin creates in people through their woundedness, as well as pouring extravagant oil into the wound so that people can feel relief and comfort and hope in their life. So Jesus begins to teach them, and he teaches all day. Now remember, they just buried John's headless body. The Bible says they've had no time to eat. They're running on empty, and Jesus is teaching all day, and finally the disciples, they are at their limit. And the scripture says that Jesus, as he began to teach him, so they left by boat, and they ran on ahead. Late in the afternoon, verse 35, his disciples came to him and said, one of the most poetic lines in Scripture, Jesus, this is a desolate place, and the day is far spent. What a profound summation. Jesus, we, we got death hanging over us. If God couldn't save John, how, how, why is he going to save me? I'm running on empty, Jesus. Now, Lord, this is desolate, Lord. We're in the middle of nowhere. And the day is far spent, or this, this, the sun is setting. So let's phrase it this way, Jesus. We're living under the threat of death. I am running on empty. We're in the middle of nowhere, and we are out of time. If I had to describe our world, it would be that way today. After these last two years, it just seems like death is inevitable, whether it comes through nuclear war or through COVID. It's just, it's over. I'm running on an empty. I know for me personally, I couldn't see my dying mother for 10 months. I had to say hi to her on FaceTime in an Alzheimer's facility, and it made her more confused. I've never been that angry in my adult life as I was at that nursing home for not allowing us to see our mother. And I know I'm no different than most in this room as well. We finally got to see my mom at the very end, just two months before she passed away. We got to see her. She was across the table outside. We hadn't seen her for a year. She came around the corner confused. She said to all four of us kids, where have you been? It's been a year. She knew it. She didn't even say our name. She was where have you been? It's been years. Father, it's COVID. We can't see her. So they sat on a table, and my mother is lunging for us, and we're recoiling from our mother because we're trying to follow the rule. My mother's life is on the clock. Honestly, I'm a loving person. I'm optimistic. I've only punched one person in the face. His name was Danny Burgoyne, fifth grade. <laughs> I punched him in fifth grade. Because sixth graders were egging me on to do it, and I punched him, boom. It's the, only, it's the only punch I've ever thrown in my life to hit Danny. I found him on Facebook, and we talked about it last year. I said, Danny, you're still the only guy I've ever hit in the mouth. Um, I wanted to punch this nurse. And I was writing a book about on-call heroes. I still wanted to knock her out, drag her behind the bush, 
put my mother in the car, get to Baskin Robbins as fast as we could to enjoy some Jamocha almond fudge ice cream together. Finally, the nurse at the end, she couldn't take it. The, I was just, the guilt, I was, I was masterful. I, I, was, I manipulated her. And finally, with the last appointment, she goes, you know what? If you guys will follow. So she put surgical gowns and everything, and we had a chance uh, to hold our mom, or, or for our mom to hold me. It was powerful. But this desolate two years, running on empty, and the day is far spent, Jesus, we're out of time. Now, here's how it closes. The Bible says that Jesus heard their reasoning. And the thing out of Jesus' mouth was, you feed them. Now, what a rebuke. Because you would think that Jesus would say, absolutely yes. You're, 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 you, you, you get a free pass. This is too much. Death, emptiness, desolation in the setting of the sun. Death, emptiness, desolation in the setting of the sun. Thank you, Jeff. It gives the people hope when they see a musician come to the platform. Like, Don't you just feel hope when you saw movement up here? Like, oh, okay, good, I feel hope. Now, we're bringing the, the plane, the wheels are down. Here we go. We're coming right over, right over. The road into the airport here. He says, you give them something to eat. And they cried out, with what? With what? So they did a little audit and found out they had some fish and some, some bread. It was confetti. It was nothing to feed the multitudes. And it says that Jesus took that audit and they did their inventory. And Jesus didn't go, oh my goodness, you're right. Yeah, the Great Commission is now unplugged because... Of all these things that are going on, we, we, we get a free pass right now to touch our communities. No, Jesus said, perfect. Because Jesus is not looking for what we have. He's looking for what we have left. And after two years, you might just have some fumes. Fragments. Few little things left. He's not asking you for what you had. He's asking you for what you have left. He blessed it. He said, here's your job, church, and we can stand together. Let's stand together if we can. He said, church, here's your job. I want you to seat the people in groups of 50 and 100. So what's the job of Homestead? At the end of a two-year period where death has been the headline, death is what we look up to every single day the last two years. Everybody's personally running on empty. There's been no time to eat. This nation is in a desolate place. And we're out of time, Lord. What do we do? Hey, can you send them away, Lord? Just send them away. That's what they said. Send them away. Which is the natural way the mind thinks at a time. Lord, we just got to regroup. We got to push the broken, the needy, and the hungry away because we are spent as a church. We're too shocked ourselves. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. And he blesses what they have left. Not what they had, but they had left. And he says, put them in groups. Your job is this, Homestead, is you got to help this community find 
their neighbor again. You've got to help this community find relationships again. Find their humanity again. Social media, the election, the riots, all that's happened has shredded our humanity with each other. You've got to find our neighbor again. And it may not be in mass, but you got to sit people in groups. They sit, and then it says this, and here's where we're going to pray. Put them on the green grass. It says it in the scripture. Put them on green grass. What? I envision out in a desolate place like that golf course in Dubai, that brilliant green golf course in the middle of the desert. Like, how do you build a golf course in the middle of nowhere? Jesus did. He said, put them on green grass. Find the most refreshing spot in the middle of the most desolate spot. So every week here in this bank building during worship, this is green grass in Farmington. This is a green grass right here, refreshing. Find your neighbor, refresh the people, and then let, then let, let me multiply. And here's how it ends. It says they all ate and were satisfied. So it goes from bearing John the Baptist's headless body to satisfaction. So we're not the first generation to experience the madness. And we still have lots of margin to go, friends. But I'm telling you, it's very similar. My empathy has been shot. I've never felt more disgust for people in my life. And I am the most, I'm a loving guy. And I like, I can't stand you. What do you mean he's saved? Where's that coming from? And I realized this death thing is getting to my head. And I haven't been eaten. I'm on, I'm running on empty. Our world's in the middle of nowhere and the sun's going down. But Jesus, I'm still responsible for this world to feed them. So Lord, I pray today that you would put a fresh touch of heaven upon Homestead, Lord. That this room, all of us feel like those disciples, Jesus. Like seriously, I got nothing left. So, Lord, take our collective fumes and fragments, Lord. Take what we have left today, Jesus. Bless it. And now, Lord, we're going to do our part. We're going to figure out how to get homestead in groups and relationships and neighbors, finding neighbors. And we're going to find the green grass of our community, God, and let people rest on that green grass until heaven satisfies as only heaven can. We love you, Jesus. I pray bright and brilliant days ahead for this powerful church in Minnesota, God. Lord, use them mightily in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen and amen. How many glad you came to the house of the Lord today? Man, you guys are awesome. Pastor Christie, is there anything you want to say before we go? And if you need prayer, I know there's people here that would pray with you. May God's grace be with you. That, that leadership book is down there. Get some for your teams, yourself, your staff. God bless you guys. Thank you for allowing me to share my heart today. Have a great day.